0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. I'm Cara hansel kehan Today we'll discuss a new article by Madhav Petty et al. titled, The Impact of Angiotensin II Antagonism on the sex-selective dysregulation of cardiovascular function induced by in utero dexamethasone exposure. This article was published March 17, 2022 in AJP Heart and Circulatory Physiology. Joining me today are Associate Editor, Dr. Crystal Ripplinger, First Author, Lakshmi Madhav Petty, Senior Author, Dr. Tabin Hale, and content expert, Dr. Glenn Pyle. Let's get started.
1: Thank you, Kara. And thanks to Lakshmi, Tabin, and Glenn for taking part in this discussion today. We're going to be discussing some important developmental origins of cardiovascular disease today, and specifically how in utero glucocorticoid administration can impact autonomic control of the heart in adult offspring and the sex dependent differences in cardiovascular function that were observed. In this study, Lakshmi, Tabin, and co-authors administered the glucocorticoid dexamethasone to pregnant rats, the dose and timing of which mimicked clinical administration of dexamethasone for women at risk of preterm birth to prevent respiratory distress in the newborn. They then assessed cardiovascular function in the adult offspring. Lakshmi, can you briefly explain your approach and some of the major findings of your study?
2: Yes, thank you. This study was designed to evaluate the impact of late gestation dexamethasone exposure on autonomic regulation and stress-responsive cardiovascular function in adult offspring. And the offspring were allowed to mature through puberty, and at 10 weeks, we implanted both males and females with radio telemetric devices for direct and unrestrained monitoring of blood pressure. To evaluate cardiovascular responses to stress, we exposed the offspring to an acute restraint for 20 minutes, followed by an hour of recovery. And importantly, the females were tested on diasterics when estradiol levels are low. We found that prenatal exposure to dexamethasone results in an exaggerated blood pressure and heart response to restraint that was evident in the females only. Additionally, the dex exposed females, but not males, showed a reduction in the high-frequency component of heart rate variability indicating the withdrawal of parasympathetic activity. And we know that angiotensin II is an important activator of the autonomic nervous system, and we hypothesize that it may be involved in the altered autonomic response induced by prenatal dexamethasone exposure. To test this, we treated the rats with the angiotensin II type one receptor antagonist, Sartin, starting the day following the initial stress exposure, and subsequently reevaluated their response to acute restraint. We found that Losartan did in fact reverse the exaggerated pressor and heart response to restraint and normalized heart rate variability in these dex females.
1: Thank you so much, Lakshmi.
2: Tabin, there
1: have been other preclinical studies that have examined in utero glucocorticoid administration. Can you elaborate on the translational aspects of your study design in particular and how your approach mimics the clinical situation?
3: Yes, thank you, Crystal. This is something we did spend a lot of time thinking about as we were designing these studies, specifically the timing and the dose of dexamethasone that we were going to administer. When we think about women at risk of preterm delivery who are treated with synthetic glucocorticoids like dexamethasone, this is most frequently a concern in late second, early third trimester. And so looking at rodent, and in this case specifically rat, where does that line up if we try to uh, translate that to a human gestational period? This really comes in the last week of gestation. And from brain development, brain development continues into the first week postnatal, which is still what would be more equivalent to the third trimester of a human. The other thing that happens in late gestation in rodents is this gonadal development, and in males, a prenatal testosterone surge. We timed our dexamethasone exposure to start at least after when that has been shown to peak in rodents. The reason being is experimental studies have shown that dexamethasone can uh, interfere with and prevent or attenuate this fetal testosterone surge. And Again, thinking of the translational aspect, at the time in gestation when women are most frequently given dexamethasone, it is after gonadal development. And so we would have expected that prenatal testosterone surge to have already occurred. And so we timed our uh, dexamethasone delivery to uh, be after that gonadal development. Uh, We used uh, scaling methods to have a dose that was similar to the range that we would be given clinically. And we gave it over four doses, as is done clinically.
1: Thank you, Tabin. So, as Lakshmi explained, the results of this study suggest an important role of the angiotensin II receptor, as evidenced by the impact of Losartan, which is an angiotensin II type 1 receptor antagonist. Glenn, what are some of the possible underlying signaling mechanisms that may be involved? And what do you think are the most important next steps that might be needed to further dissect the role of angiotensin II signaling following dexamethasone administration?
4: Downstream of the angiotensin-2 receptor, there's a whole network of signaling molecules that would have to be dissected apart. But among the ones that I think would be the most interesting are the protein kinase C family, ERK1-2, akt uh, these are signaling molecules that are involved in the response to stress. Uh, they're both can be adaptive, but they can also drive disease. So it would, it would be interesting to look um, in, in the adults here. So after the, the prenatal exposure to, to look um, certainly at the adults later in life and see whether the signaling molecules, all of them are, are individually show differences in, in baseline activity Uh, something like protein kinase C, which has uh, over a dozen isoforms, Uh, are there different expressions, these signaling molecules, and do they have different levels of activity uh, that could predispose individuals to a a greater or or maybe lesser, but probably a greater risk of disease? And then if we uh, superimpose a stress over top of them, how do they respond? Do they respond normally or do they respond in a a hypersensitive way? Which again, might explain why we would see perhaps a higher risk of of disease in these these individuals later um, after the prenatal exposure. Certainly looking at the the sex differences here would be very important uh, because we would expect to see differences not just just naturally between the sexes, but because of this difference in the the prenatal exposure. Um, And it would be important to tease out these different pathways, because that would allow us to understand how the disease develops, which then would allow us to determine the best course of of therapy, um, certainly if, if one is needed.
1: Lakshmi, one notable aspect of your study was a very rigorous study design, which, as you already mentioned, included measurements at different phases of the estrus cycle, as well as measurements at different times of the day. Why were these important factors in your study design?
2: Thank you so much for bringing this up, Crystal. The time of day is important, and we'd expect to see diurnal variations in cardiovascular function that are independent of the prenatal exposure. We're very interested in how prenatal deX produces these sex bias changes in stress mediated cardiovascular function. Given that we aim to compare male and female offspring, and given we know estradiol can have acute influences on autonomic and vascular function, we did perform all stress testing on diesteros. And at this time point, estradiol levels are low and thus more similar to males.
1: So Tabin, speaking of rigorous study design and reproducibility, which we all know remains a focus for AJP, Heart, and Circ. You noted in the study that some of your findings are consistent with previous reports, while some results were a bit different, and that the differing results may be due to some differences in methodologies that were employed or the time points at which the offspring were studied, for example. Do you think that there's a need in the field of prenatal programming to standardize certain techniques or models or time points to help improve rigor and reproducibility?
3: Thank you, Crystal. This is a really great question, but a challenging one. We know that the in utero environment and the exposures to the fetus have long-term impact on future health, right? We've got lots of evidence uh, now. We, we know this is the case. When we try to translate this clinically, however, I think we have to be careful if we want to be saying having standardization on timings of exposures or even specific exposures. We know that women can experience stressors throughout their pregnancy. They can be exposed to pharmacological agents, so prescription or non-prescription medicines throughout their pregnancy. They can have a variety of changes in their nutritional status, for example. So it becomes very difficult to have any you know, standardization rules, I guess, from a, um, an experimental perspective. The other thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how do we model our prenatal stressors or our prenatal perturbations so that they are relevant to what a woman would experience. Um, we mentioned we use dexamethasone, and this has often been, been used or, or thought of as a, a model for a high prenatal stress. So high cortisol or corticosterone exposure to the fetus. There's some challenges with that. As we know, these synthetic glucocorticoids have different affinities for the different receptors, so mineralocorticoid and glucocorticoid receptors than our endogenous glucocorticoids. And so now we have to think about what are we modeling and how does this relate to to what, what women are experiencing? In our study, as I mentioned before, we tried best to, to think about how and when this drug is given for preterm delivery. So I think it's, it's difficult to, to have standardization on time points or routes of exposure or types of exposure. But I do think it's really important for people to be thinking of how does this exposure that we're giving to our animal relate to what a pregnant human woman would experience and just be mindful of, of what it is we're modeling and how we are doing it. There are a few things that I think are important for rigor and reproducibility that, that we also took into consideration because we are modeling uh, the uh, prenatal perturbation and long-term health. We were mindful to only use one animal of each sex per litter. So this would help reduce any bias that might be influenced by one pregnant dam that had maybe a more uh, stressful gestational period than others so we tried to minimize the risk that any of our effects would be driven just by a litter effect for example we clearly see that uh, the dexamethasone exposure has an influence on the the stress systems in these animals and so we used radiotelemetry for assessing blood pressure so this was the blood pressure was taken in the except when we were stressing the animal in a non-stressed environment in their home cage. So this was really important for us to be able to tease apart the, the stress response. Being mindful of what we are measuring and how we interpret that is going to be really important. Thank you, Taven. Those are some
1: really excellent points. Glenn, why is it important to assess potential sex differences in the developmental origins of cardiovascular disease And in your opinion, what do you see as the major implications of the sex differences that have been identified in this study?
4: So I would sort of take half a step back and and first say that I think it's important to study sex differences across the the spectrum of of life. Um, It's it's something that is not often done and that has serious implications, typically more so for, for women because they tend to be Underrepresented in, in clinical trials and, and certainly for female animals who are also underrepresented in preclinical trials. But you raise the important point about the, the focus of developmental origins. And, and I think this was a, a particularly strong point of this, this study in in terms of picking this as a, as a subject, because it's an area that's quite often overlooked in terms of a focus on, on sex differences. When we consider the role that biological sex plays in Risk of disease development, or, or physiological changes, or, or whatever the parameter is that they want to be measured, we, we tend to focus on the postpubescent uh, animal or, or person when the the sex steroids have have increased. We, we tend to focus on these as being the driving factors, and, and certainly they are; they're they're very important. Um, sometimes we'll focus later in life when these sex hormones again uh, change, typically by by dropping, like in, in postmenopausal women, or or even in males who see a a decline in, in androgens. And so when we do consider sex differences, that tends to be what we focus on. And the prenatal differences are really not often considered because it's, it's not considered to be a time when you have these large changes in the sex steroids, which are the driving factors. Um, and it has been noted earlier that we, in fact, do see changes in, in sex steroids even before birth. So, so that's in, important. But by studying them before birth, we can understand the foundation for disease and, and for disease risk and for the, the basis of physiological differences between the sexes. And it's, it's very difficult to understand how risk develops or even just how the body develops if you don't have a strong foundational basis to, to build that on. So we do have to go back to what happens before birth to set the stage for how the, the post-birth uh, sex differences arise and how these contribute to, to differences. In terms of the implications, I think there's a couple of important things to, to take from this study. First, the, the differences that are seen here, I'll say, are, are subtle in the sense that if you look at you know, blood pressure, heart function, or, or the, uh, a variety of other parameters that you can potentially measure in these uh, RATs, you don't see profound differences. You you don't see rats that are hypertensive, for example. So you're seeing subtle subclinical differences. And these are important to identify, again, for understanding how disease develops, but also potentially for identifying individuals who are at risk of developing disease and designing early interventions. So by understanding what these early differences are that occur, which is, is what we're seeing here, we can better understand and potentially intervene uh, should disease either arise or or be at risk of of arising. The other implication is, and this is a a much bigger jump, which would be clinically, should we consider the sex of the fetus when therapies are are being provided? So here you have dexamethasone, you have something that's applied clinically, maybe not all the time, but certainly this is not an uncommon treatment. So should we be considering the sex of the fetus when we apply a therapy or in choosing therapies, because they may have different impacts on the males versus the females in terms of their lifelong risk for developing disease. And so again, I think that's what we take out of this is here. There's an early sign that we should be considering for risk much further down the road.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When we are visiting our physicians and cardiologists, I have never been asked what my mother's pregnancy was like. But I think we are learning there are important clues that can be, can be gained from that to set us up on our, our long-term health. And the more that we can be learning about the impact of, of these, whether it be illnesses during pregnancy or, or drugs that have been administered during pregnancy, uh, I think it, it sets us up to better care for and predict what disease risks we have in the future. As you mentioned, Glenn, we had to push the system in our rats to see changes, right? These animals, you're right. They were not hypertensive. They were from a cardiovascular perspective at baseline. They looked fine until we stressed them. Right. And then we see we've got this underlying autonomic dysregulation. So their response to, to stressors is exaggerated. And we know that autonomic dysregulation is a risk factor for future disease. And these are easy things that we can be screening non-invasively, right? We can we can assess heart rate variability as an index, a non-invasive index of cardiovascular function to see what our future, what the, the disease risk profile is in patients.
4: I think your comment that you don't see anything until you you push them or stress them is like that hallmark of cardiovascular disease of, uh, of heart failure in particular, which is whether it's an animal model or a patient for a significant period of time, actually in the disease process, everything appears to be at least reasonably okay. People have adapted, the animal has adapted. And so you know, they go through what we typically call that compensatory phase And the decompensatory phase, which marks the end of something like heart failure, is a rapid downward spiral where the disease feeds on itself. And unfortunately, clinically, that's when we try to intervene. That's that's when... Patients are given treatments because the the symptoms develop, and it seems like in many cases, the the disease is too far along to really be able to fix with the current therapies we have, and and really what we're trying to do is slow that decline, uh, not even reverse it, just slow it, by looking at models like this, where you can identify early markers with something like heart rate variability, which, as you mentioned, is a very non-invasive thing to look at. You, You can identify these risks fairly early. And, and again, maybe you stop the disease, but you can at least intervene before we get to that decompensatory phase and slow it down even more. I think your point that you don't see anything until you stress them, that's exactly what we see in, in cardiovascular diseases. Is That's what it takes to pull it out. And by the time it appears on its own, it's quite often too late.
1: I'd like to thank Lakshmi, Tabin, and Glenn for joining us today and for sharing their perspectives on this exciting work. Back to
0: you, Kara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP heart.